All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here. And welcome to the third of this year's Mantaviews, in which I am talking to comedian Matt Ford. More on that in a bit. But first up, if you've missed the first two IMD21 interviews, I'd advise you to check them out when you're done with this one. In the first, Jen chats to comedian and author Dave Chawner and Dr Stephen Anderson from the charity Beat about the rise in eating disorders among men. And in the second interview, Mick talks about being a pro-feminist ally with activist Chris Green, who founded the UK arm of the excellent White Ribbon campaign. And so to this week, Matt Ford is a comedian who hosts the excellent podcast The Political Party and co-hosts with Alice Levine, British Scandal, which is genuinely one of my favourite podcasts. In his book, Politically Homeless, Matt charts his progress from working for the Labour Party to disillusionment in the Corbyn years. So we talk about that, obviously, and a lot more besides, including the sort of personality it takes to fake your own death, drawing a cock and balls on a ballot paper, momolum, and that time I embarrassed myself in front of Armando Iannucci. This interview was recorded a few weeks ago, so to clarify... The event Matt mentions with Anthony Scaramucci takes place tomorrow, November the 22nd. Enjoy. Hi, I am joined by comedian, writer, podcaster, man of many talents, Matt Ford. Hello. 
Thank you for joining us, Matt. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on. I've got such a long list of questions for you. I feel like I should have brought a second cup of tea with me. <laughs> OK, well, if you need a second, have one. I hope you've had a wee before we started. <laughs> I have, yes. Can we start with British Scandal? OK. Because, man, I love it. Your podcast with Alice Levine, in which you talk through a major British scandal... One of you does it and the other one just chips in and says, stuff, stuff. I don't know if you want to expand on that explanation any, but that's that's why it speaks to me. You've summed it up better than I ever have, and I'm honest <laughs> what it is. If you do a series each of about four or five episodes, and it's an in-depth look at a, as you say, different British scandals. The first series was the murder of Alexander Litvinenko. The second one was the death of Dr David Kelly. We do John Darwin, the canoe man, the sex pistols, phone hacking, Nick Leeson and Baring's bank. A variety of different sorts of scandals. And, as you say, Alice hosts one series and I chip in and then I'll host the next series and she'll chip in. It's the only, certainly the only thing I've ever worked on in, in the podcasting world where the production values are so high. So all the other podcasts I make, I'd like to think they're well produced, but it's basically me talking to some other person. Yeah. With British Scandal, they've kind of got these Hollywood soundtracks and soundscapes to them, so they're completely immersive. And we record it in this pokey little studio, and you listen to it back, and it sounds like you recorded it in Hollywood. You know, <laughs> this amazing experience. And I think what's really exciting about it is I think the subject matter is really interesting and, and the way it's written and produced is great. But also that really playing with the audio medium without sounding like an industry twat, you go, oh my God, the, the potential for podcasts to to take you, obviously in terms of the quality of the conversation, mm. they take you elsewhere. But when you add in that, that kind of audio production, it is... It is almost like a different genre of podcast. So it's really exciting for me. You know, I can't claim to have come up with it or anything like that. I was very flattered to be asked to be involved because I just think it's such a great idea. And of course, everyone loves a good scandal. Everyone loves a good gossip. When I saw that there was something called American Scandal, which I kind of assumed that was what inspired British Scandal, I gave it a listen and it's not the same because they don't have someone chipping in going, hang on, what? (laughs) (laughs) Some absurdities and some ironies do just merit further discussion and they don't do that and that actually is the kind of stuff I love I I shared a flat with my best friend for about five years and one of our favorite things to do was have he'd have a glass of wine and I'd have a spliff and then we'd watch some really obscure documentary on on BBC4 and then we would just talk about the weird stuff that was happening around the periphery of it I can remember watching one it's about the house of a sad the brother of the Assad that we have was actually supposed to be the heir and he died. And that's why Syria ended up with the guy that they've got. And he died driving a very flash car very fast in poor visibility and died in a car crash. And they had a, a shot of his funeral. There's like a whole parade going through the streets and there are like thousands of people lining the streets because they had to, I think. And at the front of the car, they have got like a painting of him that's about, I would say, nine foot by nine foot. And the guy that's driving the car actually has to stick his head out of the window to see around it. And the idea that this is what happens at the funeral of a guy who died driving in poor visibility. <laughs> it's just one of the greatest things I've ever seen on television. So it's those sort of things that you and Alice pick out. Or the absolute nonsense of the assassin sent to kill Litvinenko. What a bunch of inept morons. Well, that Assad example is exactly the right example because sometimes there are, you know, the stories are quite tragic. It's really sad. That guy died driving a car in poor visibility. You know, you're laughing at, you know, details of this guy's funeral. 
But it, it's kind of sometimes in those tragic stories that the most comic elements exist. And obviously you're not laughing about the tragic parts, but you're absolutely right. You know, with, with the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, and this is the other pleasure of it, is, is there's so much stuff you didn't know at the time. Mm. That you go, what? I remember it being in the news. I don't remember that bit. And Lugavoy and Covton, who were dispatched to murder him by Russia, are basically a pair of absolute wallies who are walking around London in these terrible, garish suits, one of whom wanted to be a porn star. They're going to these <laughs> terrible bars that have, like, gold dicks for taps and like, there's, like, a huge dick in the middle of the dance floor. You're like, how is... And they keep spilling the stuff. They spilled Polonium 210 all across London two or three times <laughs> before they actually managed to get it, you know, before they managed to poison mm. Litvinenko. So you just think, this is just... They're two of the most hapless idiots. Yeah. With this with this really dangerous fluid. And they're carrying it around in his jacket pocket of his blazer. <laughs> now, that's insane. So it's okay to laugh about those bits. Obviously, it's not okay to laugh about the, the darker, the tragic elements of it. But yeah, I mean, in any story, there are these details that... You just, I think the beauty of podcasts as well is you get so much time to tell a story. Yeah. And if you're doing it over four or five episodes, you've got loads of time. Mm. And actually, it never feels like, oh, we sort of really eked that out. There's always, we always end after four or five episodes thinking, God, there's so much more we could have said. That point that you made about that you think you know it is really interesting because most of the reading that I've done in recent years has been about events that have actually happened in my lifetime. And you realise that how little you do know. You think that living through something gives you an understanding of it, and it doesn't at all because there's stuff that's happening behind the scenes. And I think what's quite interesting as well is, and it comes up in the News of the World scandal, uh, the phone hacking scandal one is, I watched that. I worked at a newspaper. We had a television on consistently throughout. I watched almost every single second of that, either in my own time or at work. And yet when I think back... I only remember the really daft shit about it. Cameron thinking that LOL meant yes. lots of love. Lots of love. And the guy that turned up dressed as a horse and, and the pie in the face. Yeah. Our brains seem to hold on to the really inane stuff rather than the stuff that's actually really important and interesting. Yeah, I guess that's why comedy works, isn't it? That's why comedy routines are so easy to remember. Mm. If something makes you laugh, it sticks. Yeah. And you're so desperate to retell that bit. You yeah. want to be the person going, I'm going to tell that bit in the pub or to my mates or to my mum. So I don't know what the evolutionary reason for that is, that it gives you kind of currency within the pack. I don't know. I will tell you, though, I, I was stuck in a very, very long traffic jam on the M25 recently with my mum. And it was long enough for us to listen to almost the complete Darwin one. Oh, boy. Just for everyone that's listening, this is John Darwin, who uh, who <laughs> faked man. his own death in a canoe. And I can't believe how many times my mum just kept going, this man's off his head. <laughs> and I would advise anyone to listen to it just because if you've ever wondered what sort of guy does that, then listen to it because he's, he was, yeah, as, as my mum said, off his head. I mean, again, even with that one, I mean, that's less, you know, we start with Litvinenko and then David Kelly and they, they are heavy stories to tell and, and there aren't many, as you'd imagine, moments of levity in those stories. With John Darwin, even though his poor sons are lied to, you know, his wife has to lie to everyone for him because he's the one hiding up mm. in the cupboard. And then she's dispatched to fib to everyone's faces, including their sons who are grieving for their dad, who's not dead. You know, that element of it is, is terrible. He's hiding in a cupboard. He's hiding in a cupboard. <laughs> and then, but also walking around the town. Like, what is he playing at? Well, you know what, actually, to be fair to them both... They kind of got away with it for a long time. Mm. They do get the life insurance money. Their property empire was doing quite well for a bit. So there's a period of time where you go, actually, they sort of, 
obviously until they didn't pull mm. it off, <laughs> it spectacularly fails. But for a while, they were, they were yeah. the, the scheme was. Now it's a terrible scheme. I, I think most people listening would think it's not a price worth paying to have your sons believe that you're mm. dead. The cost to them and the trauma and the, and the price you pay with your relationship with them. But purely from a cash point of view, when that was the reason they did it, you're like, well, they were quite good at doing yeah. it for a bit. But obviously, they were never going to get away with it because it was just too ludicrous a plan. And he was just so reckless, permanently reckless. Yeah. Yeah. So your mum's absolutely right. <laughs> you kind of see that actually in all of this, there are certain types. They are largely men. This certain personality trait. What drove John Darwin initially was that he didn't want to go bankrupt because of what people would think of him. Absolutely. Whereas you think a better man would have just said, sorry, darling, we're going to have to go and live somewhere that's less glamorous and, you know, sell all the cars and all of that. He had built up this reputation that he didn't want destroyed. And I think there is, yeah, there is a certain type, I think, throughout all of the stories. Yeah, I mean, if you think of Nick Leeson as well, and they're all... That was so stressful listening to (laughs) I know, I know. Because actually, it's not... I mean, Darwin's a different type of character, but it's not always that the protagonists are bad people is that they make bad decisions Mm. and then they have they don't have the same valve that the rest of us would have where you go oh i've made a mistake there yeah i need to now sort of correct that they just kind of double triple quadruple down on a mistake and that mistake just gets worse and worse and worse and worse and i think that's the bit the whole thing with the if you haven't listened to it, it's fascinating the baron's bank one but the five eights account where he's effectively hiding his losses Lisa. Oh, think... i just did a little bit sick in my mouth just <laughs> I know, even hearing it, like... <laughs> but at that point you think well i can i think a lot of people could go i can understand how you try and hide your losses for a bit like that seems kind of fairly rational bit risky but you, i mm. think some people would go oh i get how you do that bit it's the fact that he doesn't stop doing that bit is the bit that makes people go, oh my God, surely this is the point at which you stop. And he didn't, and he didn't, and he didn't. And I think it's the same with John Darwin. Is You can sort of understand why people might entertain the idea, not of faking your own death, but yeah. of going, well, I don't want to declare bankruptcy. What other options do I have? I'm a proud man. I don't want people to think, you know, I can, I can understand why people go through that. It's just that they reach a different conclusion to yeah. the rest of us. They, they don't have that rational thing that goes, actually, I thought it all through. Obviously, bankruptcy is the most rational. It's painful, but also it's the least painful of all the options. Yeah. Their perception of risk is just completely different to the average person. Yeah, yeah, that's a really good point. Let's move on to Politically Homeless. Your book came out last year. I actually read it over the summer, and I say read. I always feel the need to, to, to clarify I didn't. I listened to it on an audio book because I don't understand why you wouldn't <laughs> listen to something in somebody's own voice if they get that opportunity. Well, I felt weird reading it out, so I don't know how it was for you hearing it, but, I mean, I never thought I was going to write a book. I never thought I was going to do an audio book of my own book. And then you sort of find yourself in this booth, and basically you can't be too expressive, but you can't be under-expressive. So you have to read your own words at a particular pace, Mm. in a particular way. So it's not like... I'm telling the story like I would tell it. The guy kept going, you're being too expressive, you need to title it down. So I was like, I felt I was reading it like this. So I hope that's not how it sounded. I thought it sounded good, but I do understand that because one of the things that I annoy myself is the inconsistency of volume and speed that I speak at as a role. Yeah. You're just like, why don't you just speak normally? <laughs> but I have to say, I was listening to it on my earphones doing some work in my front garden. And it was when I was listening to the bit about spoilt ballots. 
And there's a bit in that that made me just roar, just roar laughing. Um, my neighbour came out of his house and just looked at me and I was just standing there and I don't think he could see I had earphones in. They're already a bit circumspect because I'm like a middle-aged woman who lives with cats. Um, and they're like, I think she's finally lost her mind. But please tell, please tell people that story about the Green Party managing to win a vote. One of the first things I learned when I was working for the Labour Party, and I, I should, I have to clarify this, I no longer am a member of the Labour Party. I left a few years ago, uh, and I don't think I'll ever rejoin. I don't think I'd ever rejoin any political party. Oh, we're getting to that. I think that part of my life is kind of done. But when I was working for Labour, and this was when Labour were in government, the Electoral Commission would kind of come and give you presentations on what the latest law was and stuff like that. And like everyone else, I thought, well, if you don't put a cross in a box, it doesn't count as a vote. That is not true. Any, and I think the wording is, any clear indication of support counts. So a tick counts, a smiley face counts, and then there's a whole load of other things where basically the Green Party <laughs> at the 20s, oh, it was some European or local elections, but in the last five or ten years, basically someone had written on the ballot paper next to each candidate, wanker, 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 next to the Green Party candidate, not a wanker, <laughs> wanker, 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 and that was counted as a vote. <laughs> And arguably rightly so. I think that's like, I think that's a clear indication. Of, but there was one there was one I was at at the account in Nottingham where I was the agent and, and one of the things basically on the night is that when there's a returning officer I mean this was another thing I learned working in politics as well. Remember that great moment where Michael Portillo loses his seat in nineteen ninety seven and you mm. think, Oh, he's hearing this result for the first time. Actually he would have known before he took the stage because they have to tell all the candidates and agents what the results are. And if it's close you're allowed a recount and as you'll know, sometimes you get two or three recounts and you're behind your head and then there's a kind of... If you're constantly drawn, actually, it, it is a drawing of lots. But anyway, it was a bit close and they were really worried they were going to lose the councils. They were just like, you know, and everything, you know, and every spoiled ballot, really check it. So all the candidates and agents get shown the spoiled ballots by the returning officer because they might say, actually, I don't think that is spoiled. That's, you know, he's said everyone else is a prick, but I'm not a prick, so that's a vote. And there was one... So one that happens quite a lot is someone might draw a big X across the whole ballot paper. And I know people have made the case that actually where the X crosses is in our candidate's box. <laughs> and actually it's a big X for, you know, Labour or the Lib Dem. You know, you could argue the toss. And if you're worried about losing a council, obviously you're going to... Anyway, there was one where someone had drawn just a massive cock and balls on the ballot paper. <laughs> and sort of half jokingly, they'd done the kind of spunk... <laughs> Like, you know, the kind of like school wall graffiti, you know, the dots yeah. kind of emitting. And I did make the point to the returning officer that actually th- that was landing in the Labour square. <laughs> and that maybe a case could be made that yeah. that was actually a clear indication of support for the Labour Party. But I, I, I did lose that argument. It, it did reassure me, though, because as someone who has recently spoiled a number of papers and people will yeah. say to you, oh, it's just a waste. You have reassured me that people look at them. So it's not necessarily a waste. God, the last time I went in, I wrote a freaking essay. Um. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I did it once. Because I've always said to people, it's not voting is the worst thing. Yeah. And basically you get ignored by the political parties. And I'm not defending that, but the political parties don't have much resource. They're clearly going to focus people on who actually votes. Then you're more likely, they're more likely to get you over, obviously. So if you don't vote, you're basically saying, I, I don't care. And I also think you kind of lose the right to, to have an opinion in yeah. a way. But I always said to me, if you go in, you can just put in a blank ballot paper, 
Because then at least you're saying, I do care about what happens to my community or to my country. I just don't care for any of these candidates. Yeah. Or you can write something on it and someone will read it. At the very least, a returning officer will read it. Probably more than them because they will show it to the candidates and the agents. So I always think it's worth doing it because I think someone will read it. The first time I ever spoiled a ballot was when the very first police and crime commissioner, which I just don't think is, should be a thing. And I certainly don't <laughs> think it should be a political thing. I think there are better places to spend money than more management. And I certainly don't think that management that's attached to a political party is a good idea. And I actually didn't know what to do. And it, somebody else said to me, you should spoil your paper. Because like, like you say, I, I, I do want to participate. But also as a woman, you feel some sense of responsibility. It's been drummed into you. Women died so you could vote. And he said, you should go and spoil your paper. And I did. And the really interesting thing about that election was only about 30%, I live in Cambridge, only about 30% of people turned out to vote in that. I'm amazed it was that high for like a new role that the public basically didn't care about. 14% of people spoiled their ballots. Wow. Yeah. Because that sends a different message. And I thought, oh, I was part of a movement without even realising I was exactly. part of a movement. Yeah. And what that says to the politicians and to the political classes, these people actually care... Either this post, your candidates are not appealing to them, and yeah. that's now a challenge to them, rather than going, oh, well, they'd rather watch EastEnders. Yeah. This is a different type of demographic that you have to listen to. Yeah, went out in the rain in order to say, no, thank exactly. you very much. Yeah. I only spoiled my ballot once. Obviously, as like a political person, I was like, ah, but I just couldn't. I couldn't vote for Corbyn. I couldn't, you know, I've never voted Conservative. Here we are, Matt. Politically homeless, it does actually mean something, and I think it's yes. a place that a lot of people feel at the moment. And I would say I very much agree. I was never quite so... I mean, you were obviously an active member of the Labour Party. I was never quite so ardently Labour, partly because if I lived in a place that had a better chance of the Lib Dems unseating the Tory, I would vote Lib Dem. And I always voted Green in the European elections because that seemed like a thing that would... You know, that seemed like the sort of level we should be talking about the environment on. But I voted for Corbyn last time, and it was really hard because I, I, I felt like it was a really death or Mau Mau type decision. <laughs> I just, I didn't, I would never vote Tory. And I just, I, I'm voting for someone that I don't want to win. I mean, I wanted Labour to win, but I didn't want Corbyn to be the Prime Minister. And I, I, we are not alone in that. Have you had responses to it of people saying, oh shit, yeah? Yeah, and I think that that point that you made there is such a big point that I think Labour were completely deaf to under Corbyn, is that basically, if you were a Labour person, or not a Tory, if you're anywhere on the Liberal left, they gambled that your loyalty to progressive politics would outweigh your revulsion of Corbyn, Mm -hmm. and that you should never put your own voters in that position. And I'd been through it in the London mayoral election, and I remember when it was Ken Livingstone against Boris Johnson, and I voted for Ken Livingstone because... I was Labour and I didn't want a Conservative Mayor of London. And the moment I put the ballot into that box, I felt sick (laughs) because of all the things I knew. And I just thought, I can't believe I've let Labour exploit effectively my loyalty. And they're very good at doing that. (laughs) Socialism or barbarism and all that sort of thing. And I just thought, I'm never letting them do that to me again. If the candidate's not good enough, I'm not voting for a party. If they can't get a better candidate... And I was livid with myself, but I was livid with them for putting me in that position. So when the Corbyn thing happened, I was like, absolutely not, never again. So I didn't vote Labour under Corbyn. But yes, I mean, so many people, I mean, the election results tell you, millions of people. I mean, you're talking about, we're now 11 years into a Conservative government. 
And their vote share keeps increasing. And Labour's keeps hemorrhaging. And there's a reason for that. Is Labour is now driving away, not just the swing voters that it lost in 2010 and 2015, it's driving away its own supporters. Yeah. People in Labour heartlands, in Scotland, in Mansfield, all over in Stoke-on-Trent, in parts of London, cannot vote Labour anymore. Because the Labour Party effectively turned on its own supporters by choosing Jeremy Corbyn. So I think, you know, it, it resonates. At, um, I can't claim that the book resonates with millions of people. <laughs> but I think that sense was, what, I mean, that was, the I thought, the defining tone of the last election was just Labour supporters unable to, I mean, even Boris Johnson. Mm. His first words after that election result were, I know people have lent me their vote. He knew what had happened. Yeah. He knew the reason he got an 80-seat majority was basically because he was up against Jeremy Corbyn. Yeah. Apart from anything else, I just think political parties should pick the most impressive person they've got. Because if you're going to run this country or any country, you should be a really impressive person. You should be really good at leadership. And at the last election, that choice was appalling. We should never have been in a position as a country where Boris Johnson was, in millions of people's opinion, Labour people's opinion, (laughs) The least worst option. That was yeah. a failure of party. Demo- that was a failure of the of, of, of our democratic system. And and I think Labour is still paying a price for that. Yeah, and arguably rightly so. You also talk in your book quite a lot about, and I agree hard with you on this. A sort of mentality has swept through the left, which is that actually victory isn't the end goal. The end goal is purity. Yeah. And and it's not, I have to say, it's not just the Labour Party, because if you look at what happened in America when Joe Rogan endorsed Bernie Sanders, and basically Bernie Sanders supporters said, well, if he's voting for you, I'm not going to vote for you. You have to reject this. And you just thought, why don't you just want to win? Just get him in by any means possible and then do what you want to do. Well, I think politics attracts different types of people. And that's a good thing. Any mainstream political party is a grand coalition. You only need to look at the different types of conservatives there are, the different types of... I mean, if you think of the Labour Party, it's basically got Tony Blair at its furthest reach of of the the right of the left, all the way over to people who are to the left of Jeremy Corbyn, communists in the Labour Party. Now, that is a broad, broad reach, and it encapsulates and includes people who are... People like Tony Blair, ruthless in the pursuit of power to win elections, to do things... And right at the other end, people are basically protesters. Now, protest is a vital part of democracy. And without protest, women wouldn't have had the vote. We wouldn't have the conversations that we're having about uh, racial equality. Mm. The stuff around COP26 and the environment. It's vital. But if you want to be a party of government, at some point, you do need to be more focused, I think on the more professional wing of politics, which is convincing people to vote for you to win an election, rather than always being seen as a kind of placard-waving element. And I think political parties aren't pressure groups, Mm. and they're not charities. They exist to talk about every major issue, to have an opinion on nuclear, on business, on finance, as well as public services and social rights and all those things. And I think... The balance of power in the Labour Party tipped towards people who are more at the protest wing rather than at the professional wing. But but also it's because the type of politics that Jeremy Corbyn believes in, I don't find it hopeful at all. I find it a really miserable view of the world. I find it authoritarian. I find it divisive. I think it effectively says these great allies of ours, who of course are imperfect, as we are, these great people, the European Union, America, are 
less desirable than regimes in Russia, Iran and yeah. Syria. And I just think that the whole thing around the Salisbury poisonings really brought it into focus for people when Corbyn gets up and effectively asks a question on behalf of the Kremlin as two people lay dying. I think that really shocked people and really made people realise this is not mainstream politics. This is out of the mainstream. Actually, this is unacceptable. It's student politics. Cambridge University has the debating society and it lets people in on press passes. So some of us scumbags can go and watch some of the amazing speakers that they have in that brilliant hall. Of course I'm going to go when I saw that Pussy Riot were there. Oh, amazing. And I was like, oh, I'm certainly going to go and watch them do a talk. And when it got to the Q&A bit, and obviously they are, they've been to prison, you know, they hate Putin. Somebody got up and some incredibly middle class young man puts his hand up and says, oh, do you think it was actually better under communism? And (laughs) honestly, they both just stared and they had a translator with them, but they didn't use it at that point. (laughs) I just went, no. And I just thought, how can people actually have the audacity to glorify this in front of people? Because she kept saying, you couldn't even get sanitary wear, like, under yes. communism. Why would you be saying this? It's that, that kind of oddly student politics, that really out-of-touch politics that sort of romanticises. Because, I mean, I've long said this, and I used to say it about The Guardian, but now I feel it about the Labour Party as well, in that they love working class people, but they just don't like them very much. (laughs) It's so weird. And obviously, whenever we're talking about the Labour Party, elements of the Labour Party obviously do understand working people. Yeah. uh, And uh, and indeed middle class people. But there is a a strange thing with class uh, in in Labour circles. I I think, sorry to interrupt, but I think it's worth pointing out to people listening that both you and I did grow up working class, so I feel like we're entitled to an opinion on this. Oh, absolutely, yes. And and I, you know, I'm very aware of my class sometimes. You know, my mum raised me as a single mum on benefits in social housing in inner city Nottingham in a a very difficult time she's an amazing woman and and the fact that people often presume that I went to private school or that I'm middle class is all down to her because she was just such an amazing you know educator and role model and and and, you know she did this on benefits she's remarkable but once I start going to Labour Party meetings and this was even true under under the Blair era not I mean I actually think Tony Blair understood the working class in a very profound way but other Labour members you know perhaps more towards the Corbyn end had actually a really patronising view of working people. Mm. And, oh, well, yes, it, they just don't understand that they need socialism. And if only everyone read The Guardian, then, you know, it's just because they read the Daily Mail. I was like, you're basically saying that these people are thick. And I was yeah. like, and it's all so stereotypical. Like, my mum listened to classical music. She she read voraciously, you know, shelves full of books, loves books and classical music. I was like, the idea that working class people just drink lager and go to the football, and equally, there's nothing wrong with that. But that, like... Oh, if you like classical music, like, yeah. uh, d- cannot compute. Yeah. What do you mean people on benefits listen to classical music? And read The Guardian. I was like, she does read The Guardian. And yeah. She doesn't, you know. It was just, it, it was such an education to me. In kind of liberal left circles, there's a very patronising view of working class people. And also, this idea that people are just so meek and sad and they're having just such a terrible time <laughs> and they're all there just in flat caps going, oh, if only we didn't have to live under capitalism. Yeah. You're like... Most people are having a great time. They they would like a better time, yeah. and they would certainly like their children to have a better time. But they like where they're from. They mm. like socialising with their mates. They have a laugh. Like what? They, they're just this view of working class life as like this sort of like terrible experience. And it's not that working class people don't need protections and rights and all the rest of it. But it, it's such a weird view. Yeah. Of these- 
Yeah. My uncle told me once, he used to work on a building site with my dad. He said, and at lunchtime, everyone would sit down and get their sandwiches out and then get out their copy of The Sun or The Racing Post or Exchange and Mark. He said, and I'd look over and your dad would be reading the complete works of Shakespeare. <laughs> he said, and I used to think, how is that my brother? <laughs> just be sitting there. He loved the theatre. He loved the theatre, which is like, you know, again, another thing that's seen as incredibly middle class. But my dad was really into theatre. Really into poetry. Because, of course, it's just so it's so weird that people are kind of surprised by it. It really makes me laugh, but that studenty affectation of thinking communism's great. And I get why people don't like capitalism, but as a rational being, you have to say, well, there's a reason why when the Berlin Wall fell, it fell in a particular direction yeah. and not the other way. It wasn't people on the capitalist side desperate to live under an oppressive regime with secret police. And as you say, not access to sanitary products and things like that, let alone all the... The stuff that gets talked about more. I think part of the problem is, in this country, we're we're taught about fascism at school, understandably because of our history with it and our kind of obsession with the war. We're not really taught about communism at that age. And therefore, I think, communism in Britain is seen as, oh, it's kind of a harmless thing. There's like these few guys with beards and they have allotments and they grow turnips. And we had a mate who was a communist, basically harmless, you know, carries around big books and, uh, you know, it's basically kind of quite a genteel thing. It's not. If you have to live under it, like people in the Soviet Union did, it's hell. Mm. It's terrible. It is a breach of human rights for millions of people around the world. Before you even talk about the treatment of the Uyghur Muslims in China. So... this idea that, oh, yeah, capitalism is terrible. Let's replace it with this appalling thing. <laughs> I just think, and you people are meant to be clever. You're at Cambridge University and you can't see this. Yeah, yeah. Oh, man. I know. Have you been watching the documentary about the Brown and Blair years? Oh, my God. I just binged it all. Basically in two sittings. I loved it. I thought it was fantastic television. Yeah. So I know you're a big Tony Blair fan and I have to confess that I'm I'm not. Although I will say, when I joined the Labour Party, which I specifically joined in order to... Because I thought, well, if you want my vote, you're going to have my opinion on who's the leader after that Jeremy Corbyn fiasco. When I joined it and you get a booklet, I did actually tweet about it. It was everyone was like, what the hell? In the timeline of Labour successes, the entire of New Labour have been missed out of it, which is just incredible. Even so, I wasn't the hugest fan of Tony Blair. I was more a Gordon Brown kind of person. But, yeah, I thought it was really fascinating. But my favourite part, you'll probably know what this guy's called. My favourite part in all of this was where they said to, to this guy, you're quoted in Tony Blair's biography as telling him that he had a messiah complex. And he says, actually, that's not strictly true. He said, I was trying to uh, paraphrase Mo Molum more politely because she told me he thinks he's fucking Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> so my one complaint was there should have been more Mo Molum in it. Oh, I love Mo Molum. Did you ever meet her? I didn't. Uh, one of my most treasured possessions is a letter I wrote to her as a, as a young boy because <laughs> I was such a fan of hers. And I've kept the letter and the, and the photo. She very kindly sent me she was a hero of mine as so many of those labor figures were i mean you look at the talent you know one thing that really comes through in that documentary obviously blair and brown are political titans but the other people around mandelson alistair campbell tessa jowell patricia hewitt mo molan robin cook you're like oh my god it was possibly the most talented government of all time. I mean, if you consider any 
front bench that's followed, either on the government or the opposition side, they just don't have that depth of talent. They were all heavyweights. Mm. Uh, Mo Molan was an incredible politician. What do you make of the Labour front bench right now? Uh, well, it's better than it was a couple of years ago. <laughs> I mean, I think there's a lot of rough diamonds there. Obviously, one, I think one lesson of that documentary, and it's something that, and I've interviewed Tony Blair, something he always says is, they had a lot of time to get good. Yeah. Him and Gordon Brown were elected in 1983. He has 11 years before he becomes Labour leader. He has 14 years before he becomes Prime Minister. That's a long time learning on the back benches and then on the front bench and going through that incremental. And what you really see on that documentary is, when you first see Ben in that documentary, he's just dweeb. The more recent the footage gets, each time his hair just looks a bit better. He's walking a bit better. <laughs> he's talking a bit better. He's sort of growing into leadership. And people don't arrive fully formed. And in any line of work, in comedy, in journalism, in, in music, it takes you a while to, to hit that spot of where you're meant to be. And obviously now, I mean, Keir Starmer's only been an MP for about five years. And he's already leader of the opposition. So the pace of change in politics mm. has sped up. So they don't get the time to, to develop and, and to make mistakes and to, you know, polish their lines a bit and sharpen their arguments. But. That said, I think Keir Starmer is the best leader of the Labour Party since Gordon Brown. Jess Phillips is a star. Peter Kyle is a star. Angela Rayner, who comes from to the left of me, I think, is, is one of the raw natural talents in British politics. Has a phenomenal ability. And I think is clearly improving as a, as a political talent. West Streety is a phenomenal politician. So there's all this talent now. Rosanna Allen Khan is a phenomenal, charismatic superstar. So there are definitely better talents on Labour's front bench. But they still need time to develop. They still need time to become as good as, hopefully, those those new Labour talents. Yeah, were. I am a big fan of Jonathan Ashworth, who I, as a human being, I, I, I don't know particularly what he's like as a politician because it's really difficult to judge. How far was he supposed to go criticising the government during a pandemic? I don't know. Well, that's a really good point, is that it's really easy in politics to go... One thing I hear a lot is people say... Well, they're called the opposition. It's their job to oppose. And that makes sense as a soundbite. But actually, that's not strictly true. The job of the opposition is to show themselves to be a government in waiting mm. to replace the government. And if all you ever do is oppose everything, you don't have any credibility. You've got no hope of winning an election. Because the people will always say, actually, you're not constructive. I think what Keir Starmer did throughout the pandemic in time will reap reward, And he's already reaping rewards because people say, actually, he was pretty sensible during the pandemic. He wasn't jumping on every passing bandwagon. Yeah. People understood that it was a crisis that came out of nowhere. And they understood that the vaccine initial rollout was, was very successful and people really appreciated furlough. And it, it's not about criticising everything for the sake of it. Obviously, there were huge failures and the awarding of contracts and things like yeah. that is, is something that, obviously, the outrage is building with that. And, and there are political opportunities for Labour. But I think you're right. It's it's difficult to be in opposition during a pandemic. You know, it's not just about the big issues. I think as shadow health or shadow whatever, or even just as a, an opposition MP, this is your opportunity to do stuff that maybe doesn't matter to everybody, but matters to a sizable proportion. And that is why I love Jonathan Lashworth, because he and I both, both our dads were alcoholics. And I have spoken to him about it. And he's done a lot in raising you know, awareness of that. He's actually the only politician that ever stood up, said something in Parliament that actually personally spoke to me. Wow. And I thought, yeah, that's that's important stuff that he's bringing up, I think. And, and you know, what Jess Phillips does about domestic violence and, and Rosie Duffield, it, it can't just be the criticism of the government. Yeah, there's loads of other stuff we should be talking about or getting on with. 
That's right, and I think it's good for people to know. I mean, I don't think politicians should necessarily feel the need to disclose all of you know mm. the appalling things that have happened to them. But I think it's important for the public to know that politicians come to politics from a variety of backgrounds and perspectives. And I think it's it's healthy for our democracy. And it checks some of just the, the cynicism out there that people go, oh my God, I had no idea that Rosie Duffield had been through that. Mm. I mean, the way she speaks is incredible. The way she spoke about her experience. I think one of the most powerful moments in parliamentary politics the last 20 years. I mean, it was just an incredible uh, speech that she gave and, and exceptionally brave and dignified. And, and the same with Jonathan Ashworth. And I just think it's good that people go, oh, actually, these people aren't all from the same place. Yeah. And I mean that in both ways. It's not that they all think the same thing or that they've all had this. People just think, oh, well, all politicians have had it fine. And it's not true. Yeah. And a lot of politicians on all sides of politics come to politics often with a desire to, because they've got personal experience of quite terrible injustice have that drive to change mm. society for the better. And yeah. I think it's good, and I, I agree. I think particularly Rosie Duffield and, and Jonathan Ashworth and Jess Phillips is a megastar. I mean, I just think there's no-one else in politics like her. The way she talks about things and her relentless stamina. She's yeah. just like a, a snowplow that will never stop, and you need those people in politics. I can't tell you how annoyed I am that people keep bringing up that stabbing Corbyn in the front thing. And if I'm that annoyed by it, she must be, like, incandescent. It's like an argument that is just ridiculous, but it's dragged out every time she opens her mouth. Well, it's just a figure of speech. Exactly. And it wasn't even her figure of speech. Somebody else said it to her. Now, talking of of politics and Tony Blair, let's get on to the political party, your other podcast. (laughs) Yeah. As you had Blair on, you've had quite a lot of people we've just spoken about on. Tell us a bit more about that. So I set it up about eight years ago because... Having worked in politics, and I I, I have a genuine affection for, in general, for politicians, as long as they're in the mainstream, because I think on the whole, the vast majority of the ones I've met from all parties genuinely want to make the world a better place, and they just differ on what making it a better place is. And they are public servants who put up with a lot and do a lot of good. I just always felt that you never saw them be themselves in public. And I would see them in private and think they're so much more relaxed and they're funnier and they talk about things in a way. Whereas when they're on the Today programme or the News at 10, obviously they have to do that type of interview because they're being interviewed in a particular way. And I always thought, I want to go and see... You know, I would go to Q&As when politicians did book launches and I would love them. I was like, this is great. There should be more of stuff like this. And it didn't exist. So I thought, well, I'm going to put it on. I'm going to put on a night in London every month where I do a bit of stand-up. I do like a bit at the top. And then I'm going to interview a politician each month from a completed, you know, all across the political spectrum, whether I agree with them or not, and tease them a bit. But ask them about their life and what the decisions they took and why they took them. Purely from a selfish point of view, it's the thing I enjoy the most. I love interviewing them. I find them absolutely incredible people. And and they have all the things, the stamina they have Mm. to take defeat. And and not just like electoral defeat, but if you're in opposition, you're losing votes in the House of Commons all the time. You know, the the government that you completely disagree with is, is doing stuff to your country that you don't like. And you have to keep getting up in the morning, keep wanting to fight that fight in the hope that one day your side will be in government and that you'll actually be able to do anything. I don't think people realise the character of some of the people that go into politics in a positive way. They are amazing social campaigners and reformers is that they are driven because they see injustice, they see inequality, and they they say, this is what I'm going to do in my life. I'm going to be your voice in Parliament. I'm going to help you out. And then 
outside of Parliament, they're helping people who've had like the gas cut off or are going to be evicted or mm. deported. There's so much of the work that MPs do is like keeping other people's lives together, helping victims of domestic abuse. I mean, they do so much that doesn't make the paper. Most of the job actually is that local stuff is yeah. trying to stop people get, you know, charges they shouldn't be charged or people are about to go into debt or, or being caught for stuff. They're amazing people on the whole. Obviously, there are a few bad apples, but... I just think they're amazing people, and I love talking to them. So I wanted to put on a night that showcased them, that was a kind of, a, you know, a, a still pokes fun and, and takes the mick, but at its heart has a pro-politics point of view that isn't just, oh, they're all corrupt, oh, they're all rubbish, oh, they're all liars, that actually says these people are really interesting. And also, whether you agree with them or not, it's really interesting to hear from Jacob Rees-Mogg or William Hague or Tessa Jowell, or Tony Blair, or Nicola Sturgeon, or whoever. That just being in a room with someone, whether you agree with them or not, and hearing them tell you why they went into politics, what they think, is an interesting and entertaining night out. And I'm delighted that you know enough people agree that the, the show has run this long. There's an irony in what I'm about to say. One of the things I most agree with you on is that we should talk to people that we don't agree with, which isn't actually a common opinion at the moment. And you actually did test me a lot in that podcast because you had Owen Jones on I think who is someone that I agree with on a lot of stuff but disagree with vociferously how was that well I have a lot of people on that I really disagree with I do the show partly out of fascination and I think whenever there's like a new thing obviously the Corbyn thing was a new thing in the mainstream even though I think its instincts are completely out the mainstream it took over the Labour Party it was it was a big talking point and in a way I care about politics because I care about what happens to people. But I also consume it in a way that's, you know, if there's a new thing. It's like if there's, in a way, a, a new band out. You kind of want to find out what it's all about and you want to talk about it. So I had him on and, and I, yeah, I mean, I disagree with so much of what he says. But I wanted to talk to him and, and get a sense of him. And I had other people on from that side. Matt Zarb cousin, Aaron Bastani. I tried to get Jeremy Corbyn on, but he didn't come on. That doesn't surprise me. It doesn't surprise me, but I would have treated him with the same respect. Yeah. That I oh, I know, I know, I know. I really would have. I, I, I just don't think that they necessarily believed me, but um, I had John Landsman on, you know, and I, it's difficult for me because they were doing something. You know, my relationship with the Labour Party, I joined it very young. I worked for it. I, I, I care about what happens to it. It drove me mad what happened to it. These people were basically destroying something that I really, really cared about. Yet... I still wanted to talk to them and, and understand what was going on. And, and I, what I always thought with the hard left was, do they really mean it? <laughs> yeah. Because actually, when you, I think when you talk to so many of them, actually, they don't. They'll go, oh, uh, you know, the sort of communist thing. You go, would you really want to live under communism? They go, well, it's not really communism. But you're like, so why are you using these phrases then? Why are you using phrases? And I think so much of it is, a lot of it is, is quite performative. People enjoy being viral on social media mm. they enjoy kicking up a bit of a stink they enjoy being provocative i understand that it's not the sort of thing that i enjoy doing you know the idea of twitter storms makes me feel ill <laughs> you know try to be as least controversial as possible really probably a reflection of my moderate politics but yeah i mean it's not easy always talking some of the guests you have on you know they're not always the easiest people to talk to because obviously i'm so emotionally invested in it kind of do, trying to achieve an opposite outcome yeah. to, to what they're doing. But this is a, a a dominant voice on the new left. 
He was a, a crucial cheerleader for Jeremy Corbyn. He was kind of the, the poster boy, really, of, of that movement. And I'm sure that episode tested people in the same way that when I have had people um, from the Tory party on, uh, that, that has tested other yeah. elements of my audience. I absolutely agree, because if you don't listen to them, how do you know what they're actually saying? And then you end up creating straw men. But how do you know you're right? if you don't know what the other option is. And, you know, I think people have this fear that if people hear something else, they're, like, going to become right-wing. I think we've got to a place now where being right, for some people, is the most important thing. And I I just think that, you know, you can afford to put your hands up a couple of times and say, you know what, with reassessment. Or there are still some topics in life I I don't actually know. I still don't know. Like, for example... Euthanasia, I've heard some pretty good arguments on both sides and I'm still undecided of whether or yeah. not I think we should legalise it. Because I think that's such a good point. I totally agree and I think either... So you, you have a, an in-depth conversation with someone you disagree with. Either it makes you reassess and you go, actually, maybe I was wrong. Now that's a good and healthy thing. Or you've tested your view... And you've basically made the argument for it better because you've had it explored and mm. you've been able to, it's been able to withstand that yeah. kind of lab test in a way. And with the people who want to be right all the time... Now, of course, who doesn't think they're right? Because otherwise you wouldn't hold the opinions that you hold. But it's about the people who advertise themselves as right and that that's like a crucial part of their identity. I would suggest that recent, and indeed not to recent history, tends to suggest... Those people get it wrong more than the rest of us. Yeah. And they get it wrong in a spectacular way because what they also get wrong is they are repulsive and they create movements that are aggressive, that are unreasonable, that are nasty, and that can then justify to themselves appalling behaviours, whether it's piling on people online or intellectual cover for appalling regimes abroad. Yeah. That desire to say, I am a good person and I'm on the internet to shame everyone else. Also, most people just don't think like that. Like, this yeah. is a kind of like Twitter phenomenon. That... Twitter is a huge part of the problem with everything that we've talked about, to be honest. For a long time, I think that's what Labour and the Democrats were under the impression that Twitter represented the views of most people when it's about 10% of people are even on Twitter, let alone a lot of them are just tweeting about what band they like or, you know, just accounts of pictures of cats or whatever. <laughs> like, so little of it is actually politics, but because that's the bit we swim in. You've got, coming up soon, I believe, in fact, I might try and get a ticket if you haven't sold out, Anthony Scaravucci. Yes. That sounds interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's fascinating. So I got to know him. He came over... He was a guest on a TV show I did called Unspun and kind of TV version of the political party. And each show I I would have a guest on at the end and he came over. And obviously my view of him before that was slightly cartoony. Obviously he'd been known as being Trump's White House director of communications for 11 days. His whole thing was, I'm not a backstabber, I'm a frontstabber. You know, (laughs) tell it like it is and all this sort of stuff. I think he got fired for saying that Steve Bannon was um, too busy trying to suck his own dick. (laughs) And good on him for saying that. Anyway, so he came over and actually, and it's the same conversation we've been having. When you meet this person, you're like, oh my God, he's not just a caricature. This is someone who's a a very talented communicator, who's a political obsessive. And the more you talk to him, I mean, this is a guy that like donated money to Obama when he stood against McCain. You know, this is a guy that, 
politics are kind of around the middle in in American terms, and obviously has now moved really far away from uh, Donald Trump. He's a really interesting guy to talk to. He's very funny. He's very charismatic. But I think people underestimate him, and he's he's got a fantastic brain, and it's almost as fast as his mouth. He's just got an amazing. <laughs> Obviously, I think about voices a lot, but he sounds great, and he's really good fun, and he talks a lot of sense, and he's funny, and he kind of, he's very aware of who he is, yeah, and he knows what the joke is about himself, and he kind of embraces that, and he's 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 really good. So he's coming over from New York on the twenty second of November to do the to do the political party in the West End, and. Uh, I mean, that would just be such a fun night. Yeah, inside. I definitely got to look and see if you've got any tickets left. Who else have you got coming up? So I, I tell you, the, what I just did actually was with Anna Sawar, who's the leader of Scottish Labour. Mm. And that is one of the most amazing episodes I've ever recorded. We recorded that two days ago. And it was out of this world. And when you talk about where are those big figures for the Labour Party now, he is absolutely one of them. And he has that ability that Gordon Brown had to almost, like, make you want to cry, if you know what I mean. Mm. You know, they talk about issues in a way that it, it touches you somewhere in your chest. You can feel it. You think, oh, my God, there's a kind of earthiness to it that so few politicians have that kind of, I guess it's almost like a preacher's g- gift yeah. for, for moving you emotionally. He really has that. He's so sharp-brained, and he's really cheeky and funny. And it ended with him um, dancing to Uptown Funk on stage. And he's really good at it. He's really good at it. The, the video's on my um, Twitter account. He's so funny. So that was great. And then, yes, in two weeks' time, Anthony Scaramucci. Then two weeks after that, Jeremy Hunt. And then, I mean, I, I, I think Jacob Rees-Mogg is doing the Christmas special on the 20th of December. Uh, my brain just, the cognitive dissonance with, with the words Jacob Rees-Mogg and Christmas <laughs> hitting there at the same time. I know. <laughs> And then I, I've got some guests that I can't yet announce, but um, some amazing guests for next. I think Neil Kinnock's doing it next year. Wow. I don't want to sort of give too much away before being able to confirm it, but um, a Labour, a female Labour politician that that I think uh, will, will be a, a very, very special night indeed. But I can't yet. I mean, the, the problem is with it, it's like booking a gig, is that you're always talking to people until it's in yeah. the diary and they've said, yes, I can absolutely do it. You kind of don't want to blow it. Yeah, some some very special guests that I can't yet announce, but obviously some amazing ones that I can. If you could have anyone on the political party, I mean, dead or alive, who would that be? I get asked this a lot, and my answer always changes. But of late, I've settled on an answer. And I actually feel really emotional when I think about it. It would be Hillary Clinton. Oh, interesting. I absolutely love her. And... You know, there are certain things in politics that really hurt, and her losing to Trump to this day drives me mad. The way that people on the left treated her drives me mad. Both, I mean, I've read, like, (laughs) every book she's ever written. I think she's one of the most overqualified politicians this planet has ever had. And I think the way she was treated was so appalling by people on left and right, it horrified me. And I think just the, the ability her character she's had to deal with a lot and i think she's dealt with it exceptionally well and i i think there are very few advocates for the sorts of politics that i believe in better than her i i think she's one of the greatest ever politicians and i just think it's a tragedy she didn't win for so many reasons and i don't buy into this idea that you know she was the wrong candidate she was bad and all that i just think she's amazing i just think she was a 
badly treated. And uh, there are certain politicians I want to meet because you want to tell them to their face, loads of us really like you yeah. and you're an inspiration to us. Yeah. And don't let defeat become your narrative because you inspired millions of people around the world from all sorts of backgrounds. She's a, a massive hero of mine and I think she would be my top pick. She did a fantastic concession speech, you know, when she spoke to little girls and, yeah, it was very moving. Her book, What Happened, I don't know if you've read that. I have, yeah. Whoa. In fact, <laughs> reading that book, I had one of those moments where I look back and I think, God, you handled that so badly. You look like a lunatic. But... um I was doing, I was actually at the Union, the Cambridge Union, uh, because that's where the Cambridge Book Festival is. Because Sarah Millican, who's my boss, had her book out and she said, like, do you want to come and ask me the questions? And I was like, oh man, this is the stage James Baldwin, like, debated with, <laughs> with what's his face? You know, yeah. of course I want to stand on this stage. And so we went to that and uh, Sarah shot off and I had to go back to the green room to pick up my bits and pieces. And I walked in there and Armando, I knew she was in there. Wow. And yeah, I mean, I obviously nearly fainted. Like, <laughs> so overexcited. And my brain was shouting, be cool, be cool. But my mouth was like four miles ahead of that already. And I, the first thing I said to him was, have you read Hillary Clinton's book? Because I was literally reading it at that point. And he said, no, I haven't had a chance. And I basically just gave him a chapter by chapter description until he eventually backed out of the room. And that was my <laughs> meeting with Armand Iannucci. But yeah, yeah, it is a great book. It really is. And what about touring with the old comedy? So, is that a thing that's happening? Yes. Yeah, so I'll, my new tour starts in February. It's called Clowns to the Left of Me, Jokers to the Right, which Good obviously name. is... <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it's the sort of thing I think, why have I not used that title before? <laughs> I'm so dense. And it encapsulates, I guess, the things we've talked about in this um, interview, that there are wallies on left and right, you know, deserve to be lampooned and, and mocked. So that starts in February and that'll be touring nationwide and tickets for the political party shows. And for those um, can be found on my website, mattford.com slash live. Brilliant. Thank you so much, Matt. Oh, Hannah, that flew by. I thought, it was, I thought we'd only done like 20 minutes. I can't believe we've done an hour. Standard issue for all women.